on 89.9, The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton. And it is awesome to be able to have a chat to the author of this new book called Title Fight, how the Yinja Bandi battled and defeated a mining giant. The author of the book, Paul Cleary, joins us. G'day, Paul. G'day, Clayton. It's so good to have a, a chat to you. And I am really looking forward to getting into this story and the, the research you've done and, and uh, you know, what a fascinating story it has. And I suppose the implications actually for uh, all Australians uh, as we, we move forward, especially around native title and these sorts of things. But before we get to that, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? You've been a, a writer for many, many years, a journalist for many, many years, and uh, it's sort of changed focus just a little bit here and there, but you've always dealt with the big issues. Can you tell us a bit of your journey, why you even got into reporting and journalism in the first place? Yeah, well, I started in journalism uh, straight out of university, and I was fortunate to uh, cover business issues, and then I went to work in Canberra in the uh, Federal Press Gallery covering uh, economic issues and uh, taxation issues and the like. Uh, one of the best things I ever worked on was, was the GST, and I had a bit of an influence on the design of that by um, some uh, documents I uncovered showing a much more severe impact on poor people than the government was admitting to, and I think that led to a lot of beneficial changes. But then um, in the mid-2000s, I had the opportunity to work in East Timor, and that was a real sort of turning point in my life because it sort of brought into sharp relief the issues of uh, enormous wealth through resources, but also the poverty that can be uh, around that at the same time. So um, I worked in Timor for a few years when uh, the country was just sort of getting off its feet and uh, was negotiating with Australia over the resources in the Timor Sea. And I suppose that sort of sparked an interest now, which has gone on for, for over a decade of, of looking at these big resource questions and how they impact on communities in Australia. I've written books about the impact on farming communities in uh, Queensland and New South Wales and some of those prime agricultural uh, areas of, of, of um, farming. And uh, and also uh, now more recently, I'll be focusing on uh, the First Peoples of Australia. Um, that's been a major focus of mine, uh, uh, starting with my PhD research uh, about a decade ago, which then focused on this issue around the Pilbara and the community, the Injabandi, and their uh, epic struggle with, uh, with the mining giant Fortescue Metals. Yeah. Um, you, you use the word resources, and maybe many might know what it is, but I, I'd be very keen to know what your definition of resources means. Oh, yeah. When I talk about resources, I suppose I'm really referring to uh, non-renewable resources, that is also known as extractive industries, um, which really means, um, which, which actually raises a whole lot of interesting policy questions because of the fact that they uh, non-renewable. Uh, so unlike uh, farming and, and forestry, they're, they're resources that, that you can renew. Um, whereas with mining, in a sense, uh, when, when you dig up a mine, that's it, it's gone forever. Uh, and so I suppose that raises some interesting questions about how to really maximise the benefits of those resources, and that's an issue I've focused on. I, I, one of my previous books was called Trillion Dollar Baby, which refers to the success that Norway has had in its oil development and setting up this um, trillion-dollar future fund, which is really about turning a non-renewable resource into a financial asset that can last for many generations. 
Yeah. Uh, we want to talk a bit more about that as we, we go forward too. But one more question around uh, you and your, your focus on this. I, I would imagine that probably most uh, you know kids as they grow up don't think, oh, look, I'm going to dream of writing about resources and and these sorts of things, you know, it's it's perhaps even in the in the the writing world, it's not the, the most sexiest of topics to talk through. But clearly, for you, it's something that is a, a passion, and that from what I've gathered as I, I look at your writing pool and even as you speak, that it it's because it has something to do with the people involved. Am, am I reading that right? What why is that? The, that yeah, no, I, absolutely. I mean, I think what happens, you know, it's really about justice. It's, you know, these are big justice issues, really. That's what re- that's what resource extraction, for me, raises. And and what happens, unfortunately, around resources is actually you get a lot of injustice uh, because resources uh, you can make super profits out of them, and so that then tends to attract the rich and the powerful and the people who are impact impacted most by that mining and extraction are often people who are powerless or very poor and impoverished. And that happens all around the world. And it's even happening here in Australia. Yeah. Now you mentioned trillion dollar baby in this, you know, sort of uh, in a sense, uh, an ability to actually say, all right, well, there is some, you know, non-renewables, but we're trying to make a difference by putting it into the future. Certainly not what you were finding as you focused on this new book and the story of Tidal Fight. Can you you take us through, uh, uh, you know, obviously that's why you've written a book for people to read it all. We can't cover all of it, but uh, take us through, I suppose, what what you saw at the start and then uh, we'll, we'll sort of cover off a bit more of the things you discovered along the way and the things that you looked at. Yeah. So on, on one level, what you've got here is... Uh, a mining magnate, uh, Andrew Forrest, uh, a very astute businessman, uh, someone who's uh, seen that the China boom uh, was 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 about to happen, and um, I was able to set up this company, Fortescue Metals, uh, just with next to no money, and and conceived of this plan to set up these new mines in the Pilbara region of Northwest Australia. And at the time, iron ore mining was was dominated by two very big uh, multinationals, Rio Tinto and BHP. And so along comes Andrew Forrest uh, with, you know, having to go into debt and raise money with 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 no with just a sort of a plan on a, on, on a page uh, and he was able to pull that off and he's someone that comes from the Pilbara region so he he knows Aboriginal people pretty well but one of the things about Fortescue because they had to borrow so much money and they're in a mad rush to develop because they they wanted to to meet the demand that they saw emerging out of Asia um, was that he um, really had to, to to rush things and and that um, especially was the case in his dealings with uh, Aboriginal people and so some of his very early uh, agreements that underpinned his first um, two mines um, were, um, were were pretty rough and ready and 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 they offered. Uh, in one case, they offered Aboriginal people uh, two and a half cents per ton, and uh, and a couple of land cruisers. Uh, that that agreement was actually declared unconscionable and was 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 torn up. But only after uh, the lawyers um, got involved and said, you know, that these Aboriginal people had signed this agreement without any legal representation. And the other way the company, I suppose, has cut corners is through the impact on Indigenous heritage. That is sacred sites and and, and evidence of Aboriginal occupation going back thousands, if not uh, tens of thousands of years. 
and some of the the company's competitors uh, in this new era are wanting to be uh, uh, a um, responsible corporate citizen have actually sort of gone out of their way to make sure that they've that they've not Im- Im- impacted. But then, of course, we saw last year with the uh, destruction of Duke and Gorge by Rio Tinto, which sort of opened up the world's eyes to what's been going on uh, on the ground in the Pilbara. And it's also the case, I would say, with FMG that they have impacted uh, quite extensively on Aboriginal heritage. They've actually underreported the amount of uh, sites and, and, and special places uh, that are out there. And that, again, is because the company is just striving to get these projects off the ground, sort of really operating at breakneck speed. And so the company's been very successful. But I suppose what I question in this book is the way it's gone about it and the lasting impact and cost of that development on Aboriginal communities who are living in that region. Um, Paul, maybe you can help us a little bit more as well. For those who, who may not know too much about the Yinjibundi people, could you tell us a bit about who they are and uh, and I suppose their uh, their ancestry, their, their belief, their culture, their understanding, a bit of who they are? Yeah, so the Yinjibundi people, they're one of um, several groups that preside over the Pilbara region in the northwest of Australia. Um, their area is about uh, 15,000 square kilometres, so about five times the size of Greater Sydney or Melbourne. And their country starts about 100 kilometres inland from the coast and they preside over these highlands. They're they're known as highlanders. And um, as a result of being in the highlands, they were actually less impacted immediately by uh, colonisation from the 1860s. And that's why uh, a lot of their country does contain... uh, um, great expanses of, of Aboriginal heritage, sacred sites, uh, rock shelters uh, and the like. And in fact, some of the archaeologists that looked at this area when, when mining was starting described part of their country as a rare find. And that is because part of it was actually what's known as unallocated crown land. It wasn't land that was given to pastoralists, probably because it was a, a bit more rugged and and, and remote. And um, and as a result of that, they, they discovered uh, all these great examples of, of ancient uh, occupation, the sorts of things that we saw in the, in the headlines with the Duke and Gorge uh, tragedy last year. And um, the Injibati people also are very, very spiritual and they, they believe uh, in these creation spirits that, that still exist in their, in their country and they, they speak to them and they relate to them. Uh, very, very spiritual people. They've also interacted with Christianity as, as well. One of the key people in this book is um, Ned Cheedy, who uh, I interviewed at the age of 106, just a few weeks before he passed away. And uh, he was a, a, a lay preacher in the local Pilbara church and was also someone who campaigned uh, against uh, alcoholism and went around the state and his region doing that. So very, very spiritual people. And I think one of the things that comes out in this book and in the court proceedings is their very deep spirituality and their connection to country. And that's one of the great things in the court evidence that was brought out later on uh, through the native title case was uh, that 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 their, their beliefs and their spirituality, and it was wonderful. I think uh, Justice Stephen Rares uh, documented a lot of this in his judgment, and Michael Woodley, the chief executive, really acknowledged that to say how wonderful it was to hear 
uh, a judge of the federal court talking about the significance of the Injibandi belief and their and and their practice and their spirituality. Yeah, wonderful. And Paul, we're going to specifically be talking about you know the 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 discussions and the fight, as you said in the book title fight with Fortescue Medals. Um, is there other mines that are on the lands of the the Injibandi, or was it just this main one? There's only one operating mine at the moment, that's the FMG, but the Injibandi have uh, negotiated uh, an agreement with um, Rio Tinto, and they've actually done that in a very uh, civil uh, manner. There's been no uh, huge dispute about it. Uh, There's been no sort of like the sort of shenanigans that have gone on with FMG. Um, and so there's potential for further mining in, in their area. But I think the uh, Injibadi people, having taken a very strong stand, will want to ensure that if there is mining, that they'll be making sure that their sacred sites and their, their special places will be really looked after and won't be impacted by the mining. Yeah. We want to explore a bit more of that in just a couple of minutes' time with Paul Cleary, the author of this new book, Title Fight, How the Injibadi battled and defeated a mining giant. Back with Paul in just a couple of minutes here on 89.9 The Light. In conversation with Clayton. On 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton. And uh, via the wonders of Zoom, we're having a chat to Paul Cleary. He's uh, been, well, in journalism and reporting for, well, ages now, covered a whole host of various things. And we're specifically talking to him about uh, the more recent areas that he has been focusing on and writing around, and that is the First Peoples of Australia and also the understanding of resources, those non-renewables, and uh, the, the looking at the economics and the social policies and all those things that uh, Paul has had so much experience in. This new book, Tidal Fight, How the Yinja Bandi Battled and Defeated a Mining Giant, is the topic that we're talking about today. And uh, as you mentioned, it's in the based out of the Pilbara Paul uh, Fortescue Metals, which is Andrew Forrest's company there. Um, one of the things that was really fascinating to me is something that you did mention, and that is that, um, you know, Andrew Forrest is from the Pilbara. And so for me, that sort of felt like this idea of, well, I, I understand the local Aboriginal people. So sort of maybe not necessarily trust me, but I, I get it. I'm, I'm going to work it there. And, and it didn't seem to actually, you know, seem like to be just like, every other person who tries to come in, um, you know, really just not caring that much about it. Is that a fair summary of the way you think he went about it? Look, there's no doubt that he uh, has had a lot to do with Aboriginal people in that region and and probably more so than the vast uh, number of, of, of Australian people. Um, but, however, I think coming from that particular region, I suppose, gives him uh, a, a particular point of view. Um, and that is, I mean, the history of this region, like most parts of Australia, but in particular the Pilbara, where it was settled by pastoralists from the 1860s onwards. And um, I mean, Aboriginal people were virtually um, treated as, as, as slave labour. Um, they were driven off their land. The land was taken by pastoralists and of course, then there was a labour shortage, and so there was a need to go and get the Aboriginal people to to work on those stations, and that's what they actually did for for a century until uh, government policy came in and said that they should actually pay be paid a fair wage, and uh, as a result, the pastoralists actually turfed many of the Aboriginal people off 
um, the stations and they ended up in places like Roeburn where the uh, Yinjibani people are now mainly based. Um, and so I think, you know, he's sort of coming from it, from that sort of perspective of Aboriginal people, in a sense, being, uh, you know, sort of a, a servitude in a way, not not really equal, so I would say. And, and whereas what's happening now is Aboriginal people want to be treated as equals and, and want to be in control of, of, of their destiny. And his point of view is to say, well, I'll give you a job. You can come and work in the mine. Um, and and um, But unfortunately, the company and, and Mr. F Dr. Forrest aren't really about offering the sort of alternatives that Aboriginal people might want. I mean, fair enough to say uh, he has employed a lot of people. It's about 10% of the workforce, which, which is fa fantastic for people who want that. But, but mining isn't for everyone, and particularly when it involves the destruction of your ancestral lands, I think that a lot more sensitivity and a lot more diversity of, of opportunity, I think, is, is warranted here. Yeah. Um, now, the book's called Title Fight, and most of that is in the courtrooms. And, you know, certainly there is a, a lot of uh, the discussion that you've gone through and you've gone, you know, in great uh, detail to explain and try and uh, let us understand really what's going on, both uh, the way people looked at it and the actual outcomes of it. For those who uh, perhaps don't know what 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 occurred, can you give us a bit of a pricey of, of what it was? And, and I mean, this was over literally years and years and, and virtually decades as well, wasn't it, the fight over this? Yeah, well, the uh, you know, the litigation started in what's known as the Native Title Tribunal, and that's been set up to, to deal with uh, applications by developers who want to get access to land that's either claimed or determined as, as Aboriginal land. And uh, I came up with a figure, I estimate that there's something like 670,000 words of, of, of judgments in courts and in the tribunal. So it started in the tribunal. Uh, FMG was able to get its mining licenses uh, approved because the tribunal always tends to side with the, de the developers, only a small number of cases when they've, they, they've gone against them. Um, and, but at the same time, um, the Yinjibandi had a native title claim right exactly where uh, FMG was wanting to develop this mine called Solomon. And uh, and they they put in that claim in 2003. It wasn't until 12 years later that they actually got into the federal court to make their case. Um, one of the wonderful things that came out of that, though, and I, I, I hope that that's one thing that people get out of reading this book, is uh, the testimony of the the people about their spiritual connection to to, to the land and their ongoing connection and their abiding interest in their mythology and their belief is really wonderful, I think. And uh, and it, there's a lot of that that comes out in, in these court cases in the federal court. And it was a federal court in 2017 which came down in favour of the Injibandi with a judgment uh, affirming what's known as exclusive native title possession, which is the strongest form of property rights that you can obtain under the federal law, um, and then FMG went and appealed that all the way to the High Court. It wasn't until May uh, last year, after um, six years of legal wrangling through the courts, that the FMG, that the Yijabandi finally prevailed. And what does that mean in reality for FMG and the the Yinjibandi people? Well, what it means is that FMG is now liable to what could be fairly significant compensation because it's gone ahead 
and mined Aboriginal land without an agreement in place. And in fact, when um, the Yunjabadi uh, first um, started preparing to go to court, um, and this was sort of on the horizon around 2012, FMG actually applied to the federal court to be able to be a, a party to that case. And it was it was given that 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 uh, role because uh, Justice McCarriger in his judgment said that FMG uh, was potentially liable to, for, for compensation. Now, given that the Injibani have the strongest form of native title, I think that this is this is uncharted territory, by the way. This has never really happened before that a mining company's gone and mine without an agreement. But that could set up uh, the Injibani for a very substantial settlement. Uh, FMG's earned $20 billion of revenue from this land uh, since uh, the mine began in 2013. It's a very substantial amount of money. Um, and, you know, it's about 20% of the value of the company or 20% of the wealth of, um, of the forest family. And so it's, a, it's, it's potentially a very significant settlement as a result of these actions by FMG. Yeah. And from a very practical level, I'm assuming there's no more mining currently occurring. Oh no, there is. Oh, the FMG, oh, wow. FMG can actually continue mining. Um, the Injibandi, uh, even having that that strong result, they actually um, can't stop the mine. But what they can do is to sue for compensation. So, yeah. unfortunately, in Australia, um, the, when they, when native title was introduced in 1994, uh, there was no way that um, the political uh, powers at the time who controlled the Senate. Um, would allow uh, Aboriginal people to have a right of veto, even though it actually does exist in the Northern Territory under a law called the Aboriginal Land Rights Act, which was introduced by Whitlam and incredibly uh, then enacted by the Fraser government in 1976. And that does give the right of veto. But under the Native Title Act, there is no right of veto. So it's, it's not a very strong law, but the best you can do is to uh, try to seek compensation for any activities on your land that you don't agree to. And I mean, I think from most of us who you know, clearly haven't done as much research and looked into this to, as you have, Paul, it, 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 that seems ridiculous in that, especially once somebody has, as you said, this strongest form of exclusive native title, that this is a site of spiritual significance and its significance for the, the community that actually once they have that, they can't say, actually, okay, we're going to talk about compensation for what's happened in the past, but now we've got the ruling. But from now on, there's no more mining. We have the choice about that. It, it seems to make sort of more logical sense that that should happen. Yeah, no, no, you think it would. You think it would. But unfortunately, uh, I guess what you'd, uh, you'd say, uh, the answer to that is what we have in the Native Title Act is a form of property rights, but but a fairly weak form. Yeah. Um, and even though under exclusive possession, uh, you you you're actually meant to be able to say, um, you know, who can what what can go on on your land. Um, FMG has has got away with it, so it's continuing to mine. And the, the Solomon mine that that exists today, it's it's around forty percent of the company's um, operations. So it's a very substantial mine, uh, about seventy five million tons a year. Um, and so, um, you know, $10 billion of revenue last financial year that, uh, that the company has obtained from this mine, uh, half of that is, is coming from Ninja Bundy com- um, uh, land, 
where the company doesn't have uh, the company doesn't have the, the, the approval of the traditional owners. Yeah. Uh, it, do you know when we are expected to know what the, the settlement will be? Uh, the Yinjibani haven't yet um, uh, lodged their claim. Uh, they've um, got some legal advice which indicates they need to um, carry out some consultation with the, the members of their corporation. So they're in the process of, of setting that up. But it is um, it is very well underway. I talk about in the book how there were some attempts to uh, negotiate with FMG and also to reconcile things in the community because one of the legacies of this um, of this fight with FMG is is that the company's really gone about fomenting division within the community, which is really quite sad because it's a community that until now was always very strong and unified. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, yeah, so they're, they're working towards filing that filing that claim in, in the very near future. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, you know, I had a few questions. One would be like, who, who does the land actually belong to? Who gets to choose what to use it for? And you've sort of answered some of those, perhaps not in the way that most of us would expect. So I, I want to ask the question as you've, you're somebody who is closer to it, Paul, than perhaps the majority of Australians. Um, what does this ruling, what does this situation mean, do you think, for the, the broader understanding of native title and, and exclusive use? And also, I suppose, then the second question, a little bit less policy-based, um, how should we all as Australians, whether we're Indigenous or non-Indigenous Australians, be looking at this going forward? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, I guess one of the things this this uh, whole episode shows is just um, that if you want to stand up for yourself as an Aboriginal community, um, this just shows you what you have to go through. The, the, it shows you what uh, you know. The, the, the scale of the litigation is just enormous. What's gone on here? Um, and and um, you know that really I don't think is is very fair when you're talking about people who have you know ancestral links to the to, to, to their land and 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 can demonstrate that they are the the traditional owners um, and I think that's partly the result of the fact that we just do have this very adversarial um, you know uh, Western legal system at play here. But and and also we've had governments as well uh, siding with the the developers. So in the case of the Injibani, they were not just up against the company, but also the government was opposing them uh, at the very same time. And so I think perhaps we need to to think about a less adversarial approach because I mean it's incredibly costly what's going on here. It takes up a huge amount of resources of the federal court as well. Uh, Federal Court of Australia, which which is government funded, and perhaps could be looking at, at spending its time looking at at, at more worthwhile and um, and um, issues that that that, that involve real um, injustice. But in, in Victoria, for example, you have um, what's called a, um, a a system that allows uh, um, parties to 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 settle with with the government. Um, and this is obviously um, issues that involve government land, um, crown land. Um, but in, in fact, the, um, the the law in, in Victoria is, I think, not a bad model to think about. So it's a it's a much more progressive uh, and, and sympathetic 
situation for traditional owners to to operate in. And um, I think that that's something that we could think about in the future. Yeah. Uh, Paul, thanks so much for you know all the work that you've done on a whole host of various issues. And certainly with this new book, Title Fight, we wish you all the best. Thanks for giving us your time and uh, you know helping us understand uh, this topic, the, the, the issues that occurred, the outcomes as well. It's been fascinating. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Paul Cleary is the author of the book, Title Fight, here on 89.9 The Light.